for our time then this morning. Let me invite you to open your Bibles and return to that passage we read in 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. We would choose our text there, verse 13. Verse 13 of 1 Kings chapter 19, which reads, And it was so, when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle, and went out, and stood in the entering in of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him, and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? And we want to particularly focus this morning on the question, What doest thou here, Elijah? You will know that in verse 9, the same question was posed to Elijah. What doest thou here, Elijah? But I have particularly chosen verse 13 because there is a slight difference in the circumstances which I want to briefly highlight during the sermon. The sermon title is taken from the question, What doest thou hear, Elijah? And because God's word is living and active and relevant and pertinent to us today, the title of the sermon is, What are you doing here? A question that we want to ask the minister and we want to ask all of us here, what are you doing here? This is a question I do believe that God would ask us this morning as we gather here in worship. What are you doing here? And by the grace of God and by the help of God, we want to enlarge upon this question to our edification. To put the question in context, we have here Elijah, and he was downcast after what happened on Mount Carmel. And you, you will know what happened when fire came from heaven and consumed the sacrifice that Elijah had prepared, while the sacrifice that the false prophets had prepared, nothing happened. Why? Because their God was a false God. God was a non-entity. There's only one God. And it was the God that Elijah served. And God, God answered by fire and devoured the sacrifice and everything round about it, clearly displaying that he was God and God alone. And Elijah, we would put it in human terms, Elijah secured a great victory that day. God vindicated him as his prophet, while all the other prophets were false prophets. And Elijah took these false prophets and slew them. And he had a great victory. And as a result, the drought ended. The rains came eventually after Elijah prayed great amount of rain fell upon 
the barren land that had been suffering a drought for some three and a half years. Queen Jezebel was angry. She was furious. Her king, her husband Ahab, told her what had happened. She would have seen the rain. She would have felt the rain. She would have heard the rain. But she didn't know the outcome until Ahab came and told her that all our prophets were slain and Elijah had done this. And therefore she was determined to destroy Elijah. And she could have done it that day. She could have sent soldiers to go and take Elijah and kill him instantly. But she was wise. She was a sly individual. She wouldn't do that. She wouldn't do that because if she had done that, it would have made Elijah a martyr. And it would have advanced the cause of God to some extent. And after all, the rain had come. And the people probably weren't bothered why the rain came or who brought the rain. But the very fact that the drought was over and the rain had come, that was enough for them. And therefore, she warns him that she's going to do this. And he takes flight. He runs. He's fearful. He's frightened. He takes him and his servant. And they travel to Beersheba, which is approximately 100 miles from where he was. And then he leaves his servant there and he goes to Mount Sinai. It's another name for Horeb that we find in verse 8, Mount Sinai. It's to that range of mountains. He goes there and that's another 200 miles past Beersheba. It would have taken him a number of days. And when we look at this incident, friends, we are not in any sense going to criticize Elijah. We are not his masters. We admire his courage. And we are prepared to learn from his mistakes and shortcomings. Because we hold our hands up and we acknowledge that we are just like him. As he is just like us. And the best of men are at best men. So we're not going to criticize him. Rather, our aim and our goal is to to learn from him. So he runs away from the path of duty after securing a notable victory and displaying awesome courage amidst the great amount of foes that were there. And this is something that we should learn in the introduction. Very often, we can fail in our strongest points. If you were to think about Elijah, what is it that strikes you almost immediately without even going into detail about his life? You know what he did. He stood there single-handed against all these false prophets and the people who were undivided. He stood there as a lone voice, courageous, 
And yet, almost the very next moment, he fails, his courage fails him. And this can often be the way with us. We'll have strong points. We'll have weak points. We might know our weak points, and we might delight in our strong points, and we might think there's no danger. But very often the danger lies when we rely upon our strong points. There we can fail. And whether we have strong points or whether we have weak points, the lesson we're meant to learn is that we depend upon the Lord's grace moment by moment, day by day, no matter how strong or how weak we might be. We're not to rely upon our own arm of flesh. Thou hast an arm that's full of power. That's the great God of the Bible. That's the God that we worship and adore. And that's the God that we are to lean upon. We're not to lean upon our own strengths. And we're not to be debilitated by our weaknesses. We are to look to the Lord. And this is something that poor Elijah failed to do on this particular occasion. So here we find him then. And in one sense we might say that he was out of the Lord's will. Running away from a woman. The man of God who seemed invincible, courageous, bold, out and out to serve the Lord. When he gets a message from Queen Jezebel, he runs like a schoolboy. And he was full of self-pity and pride. I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. O oh, poor Elijah! What a jaundiced view he had of the situation in Israel. Some of the things he said were absolutely spot on and they were correct. But the Lord reminds him later on that he has reserved 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And we're inclined to think, friends, that these 7,000 would have, in some respect, benefited from the ministry of Elijah. And this can be the way it happens with God and his dealings with his servants. He does not always reveal to his servants when they are successful. He will keep that from them. Why? Because he will know that the servant is so inclined to be puffed up with his own work, what he has done, and it very often if he finds out about success, it just fuels his pride. And the Lord will not let that happen. The Lord will humble his people. And poor Elijah thought that his ministry had no effect whatsoever. But the likelihood is, either through first-hand or second-hand or third-hand influences, the ministry of Elijah had a profound effect upon the people of Israel. And he was instrumental in curbing the, decay, the de 
the decline, although he himself was not aware of it. Elijah here was suffering for what we would call today burnout. He was absolutely physically, mentally, and spiritually exhausted. And God, who knows us intimately, who knows how weak our frame is, treated him accordingly. We don't need to go into the details, but the Lord found him. Did he scold him? Did he take him aside? Did he rebuke him? He fed him. He caused him to rest. He fed him again. He looked after his physical needs, first and foremost. The Lord was kind. The Lord was gracious unto him. This is the way the Lord deals with us. He knows our frame. He knows how weak we are. He knows what we need. Here was a genuine man of God. And he was in a difficult situation. Burnout. Doing so much. Exhausted. And the Lord ministers to his need. We want then to look at this question. What doest thou hear, Elijah? First of all, this question was posed to him at the end of verse 9. And the Lord then asked him, Go forth, verse 10, and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And what happened? A great wind came and rent the mountains. A terrible wind came. We can't imagine a wind like this, but this is what happened. A wind came and rent and shook the mountain. But the Lord wasn't there. Then an earthquake. What a horrendous experience to experience an earthquake where the ground shakes. But the Lord wasn't there. Then a fire came. But the Lord was not in the fire. But then a still, small voice came. What was this teaching? Well, it was teaching Elijah that the spectacular, the bold, the clearly visible way that God had been working in times past, he was not going to work in that way in the future. And we would see that as we looked at the life of Elisha, who was the one who would succeed Elijah how their ministries were completely different. And God was teaching Elijah something else. That God is not limited. You know, we know that in days, times past, God sent a flood upon this world and destroyed it. God sent fire and brimstone from, on the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. But God is still sending judgments. Our nation is under a judgment today, but there's no fire and brimstone. God has many arrows in his quiver. He is not in any sense unable not to move and to act appropriately to carry out his will and purpose. God is never thwarted. Don't think that for one moment. 
I say this reverently. God has a, a holy and a fertile imagination. And he's got all of creation to use to further his plans and purposes. And he will not be stuck at any moment, at any time. And this is to encourage us, friends. We maybe don't see the spectacular today. We don't see our places of worship full of people. We don't see wonderful communion seasons like we used to see. We don't see people like in the times of the Apostle of the North going out at Ferentosh there beside the burn and 10,000 gathering in the open air to remember the Lord's death. We don't experience these kind of things today. But has God stopped working? Has God lost his imagination? Is God thwarted? Not a bit of it. Not a bit. And after the fire, a still, small voice. And I want you to notice, friends, something following the still, small voice. Elijah came out. When all of these other things are happening, Elijah didn't come out from where he was. For verse 11 tells us, go forth. But he didn't. But it was after the still small voice, and it was so when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out. It was when he heard the still small voice that Elijah went out, and this question was posed to him the second time. What doest thou here, Elijah? Elijah himself wasn't moved by the, the wind, or the earthquake, or the fire, by the spectacular. He wasn't moved. But when he heard the still, small voice of God, then he moved. Friends, we need to hear the still, small voice of God. This is what we need to hear. This is how God is moving and working in our day and generation. It is by the still, small voice of God. And friends, I put it to you this, this morning that as we're gathered here in Partick Free Church of Scotland, continuing on Thornwood Terrace, here we are, and God is asking us this pertinent question that he said to Elijah. What are you doing here? What are you doing here, man and woman? What are you doing? First of all, then, we want to take up this question in a general sense. What are you doing in this world? Here you are, you have come into this world by ordinary generation. I don't need to elaborate, you know all about the facts of life. But you've come into this world and you've known nothing about it. But God has known. God has a plan and a purpose for every man's life. God knew you before you were formed in the womb. And he has brought you into this world to be here at this particular time and occasion. And what are you doing here in this world? Are you serving the Lord Jesus Christ or not? Are you on God's side or not? 
You cannot, you cannot sit on the fence. Neutrality is not a position. You're either with the Lord Jesus, you're either taking up the cross and you are following him, or you are not, you're against him. It's as clear and as simple as that. I know people don't accept that position, but that's the biblical position. We're either in the kingdom of light, we're either with Jesus Christ, we're either following him, or we are still children of wrath, and we're in that kingdom of darkness. And we're under the thraldom and the domain and the dominion of the evil one. How can that possibly be? Well, you're just living like him. You're living like in rebellion. That's what it means. It doesn't mean to say that you're as evil as the devil. We're not saying that for one moment. But you have the same nature as the devil. It's full of rebellion. What are you doing here then? What are you doing with your life? Life has been given to you. Life is a gift. God has given you life. He's the life giver. All our lives have come from God. We cannot sustain our own lives. We cannot give ourselves life. Our parents cannot give us life. God has given us life. And because God has given us life, you are accountable unto God. What are you doing then? with your life. What is life all about? A great question to ask ourselves. What is life all about? Why are we here? What purpose is it in life? Many people will say today, there is no purpose in life. And they are being consistent. Because if you are an atheist, or as most people are today, practical atheists. What does that mean? Well, it means simply they live their lives without any reference to God whatsoever. They get up in the morning and they think nothing of God. They retire at night and they have thought nothing about God throughout the whole of their day. And you might say all of their days. They never think about God for a moment. And they live as practical atheists. If that is your position, friends, I have to tell you that life is indeed meaningless. It is without purpose. We simply eat, we drink, we're merry, we pass on, that's it. That's the life of the atheist. That's his gospel. That's his great hope. But it's not the biblical hope. It's not the Word of God. The Word of God tells us there is a great purpose in life. What is the purpose of life? The purpose in life is to serve the living God, our Creator. And friends, once you grab this purpose, life has meaning. Life has real meaning. Thou art worthy to receive glory and honor and power for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. The book of Revelation chapter 4, I think verse 11, that's what it is. The whole of creation, and we are part of it, the whole of creation is there to honor and to glorify God. And if you're not living a life of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what you might be doing, no matter what you might say, no matter what you might achieve, 
Your life has no purpose. It has no meaning. And I tell you, friends, this philosophy, this teaching is dominating our world today. It is the, it is the doctrine of the world. There's no purpose. I'm going to be controversial here. But I will be guarded because I'm not a psychologist. And I will speak, generally speaking, here. But we live in a day and in a time when there is much unhappiness. There is so much sadness. There is purposelessness, despair, despondency, unhappiness, depression in society today. Now there may be a variety of reasons for these things. And as I said, I'm not an expert and I'm not going to approach upon something that I do not know anything about. And I will speak in a general manner. But if it's true, and you will acknowledge this, if it's true that many people live as practical atheists, is there any surprise then to the biblical Christian or to the biblical worldview that we have so much unhappiness? Because happiness, friends, is bound up in a glorious relationship with our Creator through the Lord Jesus Christ. And where we don't have that relationship, you cannot expect to be happy. 1 Corinthians, we looked at it some time ago. Chapter 10, verse 31. Paul dealing with the Corinthians about sacrificing to idols and that kind of thing and whether it was correct for the, the Christians to do and to participate in these things. What does he say to them, which is apt and appropriate to us this morning? He says to them, Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Do all to the glory of God. What are you doing here in this world? Can you say this verse is true of you? Whether you eat or drink, whether you work, whether you play, whatever you do, do you do it to the glory of God? Most people, and they would be honest, they would hold their hands up and say, no, we don't. We do it for ourselves. Then you cannot expect to be happy. You cannot expect to find fulfillment. You cannot expect to find a purpose in life if you're missing out what the purpose of life is all about. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's why we're here. That's why you're here. That's why you have been created. And friends, if you're not in Christ, you are not. So what are you doing here in this world? 
Are you still a rebel? Are you still fighting against God? Is your mind still at enmity against the one true and the living God? Is that your position? And do you expect to be happy? And do you expect to be fulfilled when you're going against your Creator? Impossible. What must I do then? The answer is clear. The answer is crystal clear. You must go to the Lord Jesus Christ. You must go and call upon Him. You must have the relationship that you should have with your Creator through our Mediator, through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Gospel. You know, the Gospels, they are not to make us sad, but happy in the true and the biblical sense. It doesn't make us happy like the world. The world was happy last night in their pubs and in their clubs and their drinking and in their dancing and as they were following their, their idols in the football field or whatever they were doing. They were happy then. The Christian doesn't find his happiness in these things. He finds his happiness in serving the living God. Can you say that then today, friend? What are you doing here? What are you doing in this world? Here's the purpose of it. It's to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Again, secondly, let us notice this question as it uh, applies maybe a bit closer to heart to each of us. When we ask this question, what are you doing here? Where you live and where you reside? What are you doing in your own home? Here's a controversial issue, isn't it? Our homes. You know, we've got to take our Christianity from the church to our home. It's the hardest place to be a Christian in your home, in your own fireside, in your own living room. That's the hardest place to, to witness. It's the hardest place to live out your Christian life. What are you doing then? What are you doing there? What are you doing as a husband? You're a Christian husband. Do you love your, your wife? Christ loves the church. And the husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. Oh, if we would think upon that, if we would meditate upon that, if we would understand the wide application of that, it would humble every single husband. What did Jesus do for the church? Jesus was crucified for the church. Jesus voluntarily gave up his life for the church, for his bride, for his wife. What are you doing as a father? You're to bring up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It sounds great when we read it in the Bible, but how do we actually carry that out in our homes? Children are demanding. Do we give them time? Do we spend time with them? Do we embrace them? Do we tell them the words, I love you? 
Do we ever say that to our children? We might instruct them, but do we ever embrace them and tell them in the Lord, I love you? What are we doing here as an office bearer? Minister, what are you doing as an office bearer, as one who has been called to preach the gospel and to pastor the flock? What's the goal of the ministry? The goal of the ministry is to see souls converted and to be made ready and prepared for eternity. Minister, what are you doing? Office bearer, what are you doing for those who are under your care? What are you doing as a wife? Wives, submit unto your husbands. Oh, you can hear, you can hear the feminists rise up, can you not? Can you not see them throwing their rotten eggs and rotten eggs at the preacher? Wives, submit unto your husbands. Don't you know we're living in the 21st century? We don't obey that. Christian women do. Sarah called Abraham Lord, not in a worshipful sense, but she recognized his headship over her. What are you doing as grandparents? It's great being a grandparent. You can take your grandchildren, you can have them for an hour or two, maybe overnight, and then hand them back. Is that it? Do we not have a responsibility over our grandchildren? We don't have the same responsibility over them as their parents do, but we have a responsibility that we might, by our conversation and by our manner, that we might reflect something of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we recommend the, the Christian life by our conduct as grandparents towards our grandchildren, or do we spoil them? What are you doing here as a child? Do you honor your mother and father? Do you give them reverence? You know, you can be obedient without giving them any honor whatsoever. We are to honor our parents. We are to reverence them. We are to respect them. And our obedience is to flow from a sense of honor that we have towards them. It shouldn't be obedience with a gritting of the teeth against our will. What are you doing then as a child? Finally, briefly, what are you doing here worshiping in Partick Free Church of Scotland continuing? If you're a visitor, we sincerely and warmly welcome you. And we're delighted to have you with us. And we hope that your time with us will be a blessing. And we pray that when you return to wherever you've come from or whatever congregation you worship in, that you would fondly remember your time in Partick. And please be assured that you will receive a warm welcome should you ever return. But what are you doing here, all of us, in Partick, as a church member, as an adherent? And when I ask this question, 
What are, we, what are you doing for the Lord? What are you doing for the Lord? Here was Elijah. What doest thou here, Elijah? You shouldn't be here. You've left your post. You should be back there battling the works of the, for the work of the Lord. And instead you've abandoned your post. And he was telling them to get back into duty. Friends, as church members, as adherents, we have duties, we have privileges, we have responsibilities. We are to serve the Lord. And that's why we come, I hope, to partake Free Church of Scotland continuing, that we might serve him in our day and generation. That does not mean, and I emphasize this and I underline it, it does not mean that you come out with a minister when he's on the street. That's not what I mean at all. But you are to serve. We're servants. You have a role, I have a role. We mutually depend upon each other. The minister can't do everything. The office bearers can't do everything. We're a family. We're one. We're a team. The greatest team is a team that can work together. One footballer will not win the World Cup. They have to work together. So it is in the church. Sadly, some are here as spectators. We're not here to spectate. We're here to worship. We're here to serve. We're here to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. What are you doing here? What are you doing for the Lord? It's good, friends, to be challenged. Elijah was surely challenged. He had done great things. But God says to him, What are you doing here? You've work to do. Get back. And it may well be, friends, that we have to go back. We have to go back to the things that we first did. This was his duty. Go back. The work of God was going to go on. A new phase was going to begin. God was going to visit Israel. He was going to sort out their idolatry. Haziel was going to come. Jehu was going to come. And Elisha would take up Elijah's mantle to continue the good work. What are you doing here? <clears throat> 